Um, our second speaker is Chitra Ramalingan, who hails from Yale. Sounds a bit like the beginning of a, a haiku or, a, uh, or some, some, some short poem, but it's not. Um, the issue of photographic archives collections in science departments is an interesting one. Science lads are about the future and the archive is about the past in a way, so we will see how this particular dilemma is, uh, is squared. Chita. So I'm here to talk to you about the idea of the laboratory as a photo archive. Hold on, don't look at this yet, it'll only confuse you. Um, okay. So I'm, right. So I'm in, in my work right now, I'm sort of transitioning from um, having been someone who thinks about science and experimental practice as a form of visual culture and visual practice. And so I've been thinking about photography for years as an element of that kind of visual practice in science. I'm now sort of slowly, I've been shifting towards thinking about science as a material culture and thinking about photographs as part of the material culture of experimental science. And so um, what I'm going to be doing today is talking a little bit about the, the ideas behind my newer project, which is on the idea of the laboratory as an archive. Um, and I'm going to be talking about an example that's from my former work um, on the visual culture of electricity, but I'm going to be thinking about it with this idea of the material archive um, in the foreground. So that's just an explanation of what's going on here. But first I'm gonna talk a little bit about why we might want to think about laboratories a little bit carefully. So science, um, from the early modern period to the present, has been practiced in a wide range of very different kinds of place. Now I'll bring my um, slide back up. Is there something else for me to control them with? Is it this thing? Yes? No. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, there we go. So, for example, there's the dark enclosed alchemist's workshop. So that's on the left here. Versus the brightly lit modern academic chemistry laboratory. There's the Natural History Museum with its shelves um, and drawers full of preserved specimens, or the Botanical Garden with its ordered arrangements of plants that represent global variety all in one place. There's also, I won't show you images of all these, but there's the remote field site, like for instance places in the Arctic, um, where naturalists and explorers encounter that natural variety in its own place. Um, there's the sterile spaces for a diagnosis of the hospital. There's the astronomical observatory, the cathedral, the voyaging ship. There are all sorts of places where science is done um, besides the laboratory or in addition to the laboratory. And there have been now decades of work in science studies in the collection of disciplines that, that, that look at science through the lens of history, sociology, ethnography, historical geography. Decades of work that have taught us to pay attention to the complex relations among the design and social organization of the places where science is done, um, between that and the disciplinary practices that happen in those sites, and the character of the knowledge that is produced there. So these things are all um, happening at once. They're being co-produced. Um, and this is how places like the Botanical Garden um, or the laboratory become special sites where certain kinds of truth about the natural world can be reliably established. So today I want to talk about perhaps, well definitely, the most iconic place where science is done, the laboratory. And I want to explore in a general way its relationship to photography as a family of practices and um, to photographs as a class of objects. And there are a number of ways one could do this, 
But today I'm going to focus on a particular kind of laboratory project. So laboratories where the work of observation or experiment has resulted in the amassing of large numbers of photographs. And even when these photo archives have been dispersed, destroyed, or, or lost, as they almost always are for 19th century labs and often for later ones as well, and, and this will be true of the, the project that I'm going to talk about most today, um, we can still attend to the signs of their former material presence, and we can use that to think productively, I think, about the complex relationship between photography and the natural sciences. Okay, so in the history of science and in science studies more broadly, the histories of the laboratory on the one hand and the museum or the institutional archive on the other hand are, are usually, they're pretty much always told separately. Or sometimes they're told in opposition to one another. So for example, in the, the case of the life sciences, the kind of long history of the modern life sciences is often told as the story of a museum-based and collections-based natural history um, giving way in the 20th century to a laboratory-based biology. So there's this idea that the lab and the museum are two kind of definitive um, institutional spaces for doing science that were bequeathed to us by the 19th century, but that they're, they're somehow in opposition to each other, or maybe even the museum has given way to the lab. Um, so the lab has been conceived as a site for experiment, where natural phenomena and processes um, are investigated and manipulated through the use of specialized instruments. Whereas the museum, instead, is understood as a space of accumulation, where specimens or telling objects are collected, organized, and displayed. So um, like this view of uh, the Peabody Museum of Natural History at my home institution. So in a place, a site of accumulation, like a museum or an archive, problems of classification, storage, retrieval, and preservation become paramount. So that's, that it's through those practices and those kinds of material engagement with collections that knowledge comes out of these places. But that's not how, um, in science studies, we have tended to talk about laboratories and the sorts of knowledge that come out of them. In fact, though, laboratories, from their origins in alchemists' secretive laboratories and apothecaries, sorry, apothecaries' artisanal workshops, um, to their modern instantiations, laboratories have always been sites of accumulation. They housed collections of, of specialized instruments, um, of samples of sometimes rare materials, and of archival records and images. So for example, this is an image um, made posthumously of Michael Faraday's laboratory at the Royal Institution. Um, it's, I think it's supposed to be a scene from the 1830s, and it's based on a contemporary painting. And so it's, um, you can see here how Faraday's meticulously organized um, comprehensive collection of chemical substances in the jars and various vials on the shelves are an essential part of this lab. It's, it's what made it the most well-equipped chemical and physical laboratory in the world in its moment. Early, earlier specialized sites for experimental research in physics in the 18th century were often referred to not as laboratories, but rather as experimental cabinets or cabinets of experimental philosophy. So again, you can see how the, the collecting of instruments has been a really essential part of the, the house of experiment. Um, I'm going to be talking today about some experiments by Warren Delarue, and this is an image of some of the vacuum tubes that were used to make the images I'm going to show you later. He had hundreds of these things. Um, so an experimental project in electricity is also a collection of tubes, um, and that a carefully ordered and numbered collection of tubes, in fact. So rooms for experimenting have always been collections, and one of the things that they have been collections of is experimental images. So to go back to Faraday for a moment, um, so again, I'm not yet talking about photographs. These are a collection of microscope slides that Faraday made 
Um, in the mid-1850s, he was exploding bits of metal wire electrically onto various surfaces. One of the surfaces he tried was, was glass microscope slides. And there are just boxes and boxes of these numbered slides. And then there are his meticulously ordered laboratory notebooks. Um, and each slide is indexed to a particular day of experiment. Um, so Faraday's lab is also his collection of equipment, it's also his collection of experimental images, and his collection of notebooks and other archival records. All of those things make up the laboratory. Um, so another, perhaps even more expansive way of characterizing laboratory practice would be to focus on what Karin Norsatina and other sociologists and ethnographers of science have called the reconfiguration of natural objects. So these scholars have argued that in laboratory practice, the objects in the world, so stars, organisms, um, rocks, things like that, um, can be reconfigured through laboratory practice so that they don't have to be taken, first of all, as they actually are in nature, so they can be simplified or translated into some other form. Then they don't need to be dealt with where they are in nature, so we can un-anchor them from their natural place um, and bring them home to the laboratory for analysis. They can be made more mobile. And then finally, objects don't need to be accommodated when they happen. So lab science can make events occur outside of their natural cycle for laboratory study, or um, they can turn those kinds of events into stable traces that can then be examined at leisure. They can take the ephemeral and make it fixed. Um, so lab science can affect a series of transformations onto unruly natural objects in order to make them more manageable. So this is where I think science studies and its take on the laboratory intersects significantly with the history of photography in ways that neither disciplinary approach, I think, has fully kind of come to grips with. For from the mid-19th century onward, photography was adapted into lab practice in fields where it made it possible to either translate or reduce um, unruly objects into more manageable forms or visible traces, say if it's a non-visual thing. Um, photography was used um, when it made it possible to unmoor immobile or unwieldy large objects from their place in order to bring them home. Um, and it was used when it was possible to use photography to change the unmanageable temporality of natural objects, to slow down the very fleeting or to speed up the very slow, um, to capture the ephemeral or the rare in a stable and accessible form. So photography is certainly not the only tool that allowed these kinds of transformations, and for many kinds of natural object and fields of scientific practice, it was unsuitable for those goals. But for any lab where the work of experiment involves producing a large number of images, whether photographic or otherwise, that site necessarily becomes an image archive. So I already showed you the, um, right, the, the Faraday slides. And once you become aware that in the laboratory there is, or at least once was, probably a large cabinet holding boxes with hundreds or thousands of fragile images, you can begin to reflect upon the museological aspects of laboratory practice. And so this is what I'm trying to get at when I am trying to move to thinking about the laboratory as a photo archive. Um, so that brings me to the example that I'm going to talk at most length about today. Um, an example of how we can reconstruct the existence of a massive photo archive behind an experimental project, even when it doesn't exist anymore. And we can even begin to foreground the material engagement with that archive, with that collection, and see how it shapes the knowledge um, that was produced. So I'm going to be focusing on Warren De La Rue, who, um, those of you who visited the History Science Museum today or, or will tomorrow, you'll be lucky enough to see some of his astronomical images. That's what he's most famous for. 
Um, he was the head of a major printing company and an innovator in astronomical photography. Um, I'm going to talk about his electrical experiments, but first I want to I talk briefly about his um, astrophotography work because it is um, related. Um, so one of the things that Warren de la Rue was most respected for in the astronomical community was the production of a massive archive of daily photographs of the surface of the sun at Kew Observatory, which was started um, in 1858, and the, the purpose was to track the cyclical movements of sunspots. So every sunny day, which is not actually every day, um, the face of the sun was photographed with this um, device he built called the photoheliograph, and it operated continuously from 1858 to 1872 tracking the movements and changes of appearance and position of sunspots over an entire solar cycle. Um, and so I think um, over that period of time, almost 3,000 pictures were produced for this kind of daily archive of the sun. In 1860, he transported a mobile version of the heliograph to Spain to record images of total solar eclipse. And those are some of the things you can see at the museum um, here in Oxford. So the aim in all these projects was to produce a serial photographic record of the emergence and disappearance of the mysterious solar prominences um, in the sun and other elusive visible forms in astronomical entities. Delarue's work at Kew and on this eclipse, eclipse expedition provided him with models for how to stabilize an elusive, visually challenging phenomenon. So the cyclical, like the sunspot, or the singular and virtually unrepeatable, like a rare solar eclipse event. Um, so how to stabilize that by producing an ordered archive of images and a detailed chronological history of observations. So when the Q heliograph project ended, Delarue set up a new expensive electrical and chemistry laboratory at his home in London's West End, where he and his assistant, Hugo Mueller, spent eight years studying an electrical effect called the stratified discharge. And so there are some uh, reproductions of his photographs here. This is from one of his publications. So the idea is when you apply a high voltage across um, a long, thin glass tube from which all of the air, or most of the air, has been evacuated um, at, a, at very low levels of uh, pressure inside the tube, strange um, luminous forms start to appear, whoops, um, start to appear inside the tube. Um, sometimes they flash in and out, sometimes they move, um, sometimes they're colored, different colored. Um, and so there's this set of characteristic patterns that, that were called the stratified or striated discharge. So these, um, yeah, these sort of um, repeated serial um, shapes throughout the tube. And this is what De La Rue focused on for years, these regular series of bands of light. Now part of the trouble in this experimental project was that every use of a vacuum tube might drastically alter its visual behavior. So even an impressively varied collection of vacuum tubes like the one I already showed you could not serve as a reliable collection of specimens of vacuum discharges. So just because you have all the tubes doesn't mean you can make the same um, strange stripy patterns again. Many of the most beautiful and intricate forms that were seen in a given tube were only produced once, and then they were lost forever. Although many physicists dismissed the electric strata as irregularities precisely because of this unrepeatability, Delarue and, and, and others um, thought that they were likely to be the most important and maybe even the most revealing feature of electricity, that if we could come to grips with these strange patterns inside these tubes, we would understand what electricity really fundamentally was. So he set about producing as many new forms of this phenomenon as he could and methodically documenting them. So the strategy was to experiment with new untouched vacuum tubes via a repetitive series of experiments. 
So he would um, evacuate the tube, um, hook it up to his um, giant battery, and when he produced a, a particular distinct phase of the pattern inside the tube, they would pause, he and his assistant, they would write down verbal descriptions of the tube, of what they had seen, they would draw hand-drawn sketches, and they would take some photographs if possible. Then a small amount of air was allowed to enter the tube, and then it was immediately re-exhausted, and they would try and produce the same thing over and over again until they were not able to produce the same thing again. Um, and then at that point, they would um, move on to the next kind of pattern. And so they repeat this multiple times over and over again, and they recorded it in excruciating detail, observing it from different angles over time. And the idea was to compile a complete pictorial and textual account of every single pattern ever seen inside a vacuum tube in this lab over the eight years that they were doing this. And in the published history, so you can see two pages of, um, of, of one of his publications here, and you can see it's just, it's a kind of numbered list of everything that was done. So here's what the pressure was, here's what I saw, I took a couple photographs, um, and and then there are cross-references to the photographs which were reproduced as steel engravings at the end of each publication. There are also cross-references to some of these engravings from his line drawings. Um, I think my understanding is that he did the engravings from the line drawings, so he did the drawings and these engravings himself. Um, so despite all of this effort to try and repeat things over and over again so that they could be comprehensively described, um, many phenomena only appeared once. And so every chronological account of these experiments on a given tube described an essentially unrepeatable experiment, whose only fixed trace was this um, published history and the associated imagery. So they published these tube histories. Some of them were over 100 pages long. Um, and they were accompanied by these densely packed arrays of um, engravings from photographs and drawings. The original discharge photographs were taken under different conditions, different exposure times. He usually recorded exactly what was done, but not always. He doesn't ever tell us what process he used to make the plates. He, they're definitely glass plates. He calls them glass plates at some point, but um, I'm inclined to think they were wet collodion because that's what he used for the astronomical stuff, but dry plates were around by now and they might have been more sensitive, so I'm, I'm really not sure. Um, yeah, and so details of every photographic trial are recorded in these published histories, and not all the photographs that were taken are published. So there are 148 photographs of tubes that are reproduced in these plates like this. So this is, um, so each plate had about a dozen photographs that were combined onto a single plate for the publication. Um, and he's not just um, printing the, these reproductions of the photographs in the order that they were produced, like in the chronological order that appears in the textual histories. Instead, he's constructing alternative chronological arguments in the plates. And so it may appear as though, um, except for the last one, it might appear that these are all the same tube and that what you're seeing is a sequence from you know, a couple of luminosities to more and more and more and more and more. And that's in fact what he um, tells you in the text, that you can see this plate as a temporal succession, but in fact, there are three or four different tubes that are being used here, and images from different phases of the experimental history are being brought together here to produce this sequence. Um, right, so the drawings are integrated directly into the histories, the photographs are reproduced in these plates at the end of the histories. Um, but throughout the whole project, there are these really complicated cross-references among all these different kinds of records. And, um, you know, even though the histories look like chronologies, if you, you start to see that he's, he'll sometimes describe a particular form 
as being just like this figure that was reproduced in a history 10 pages ago. And so each of these images represents the particular experiment in which it was observed, but then it also represents a typical form that he can refer to again and again and again. And that's also true of the photographs. So they stand for a particular moment in time, and then they stand for a particular morphology that was seen again and again and again. So 149 photographic images of the tubes are reproduced. But it's clear that Delarue had taken several hundreds of photographs as part of these um, discharge studies, and maybe even up to 1,000. That would be my guess. Um, so when he was doing this project, there were definitely hundreds or maybe 1,000 of glass plates in the laboratory, um, which we don't have anymore. Judging from his practice in um, astronomical photography, it seems likely that he had them printed as albumin prints and then possibly um, cut up those prints in order to organize and reorder them as he was um, con composing these histories and the um, image reproductions that came with them. But I don't know that. We don't have any record of his drafts. Um, but I, I feel that there must have been a lot of cutting and pasting, a lot of moving around different images from place to place, trying to make connections between different kinds of morphologies. This would have been quite the archival project, but there's no physical trace of it today. The original plates are gone. No lab notebooks or drafts remain. His lab um, you know, was dismantled after his death. Um, so all we have now are these long published articles, these pages and pages of experimental histories and these um, reproduced photographs. And it's only by reading them very carefully that we become aware of the material engagements with a massive photo archive upon which these articles and the knowledge about electricity that came out of them depended. So 19th century lab archives are usually gone, except in the case of someone like Faraday, who saved them so meticulously and had a strong sense of his lab as an archival space. Um, but most of them are gone. And some of the 20th and 21st century laboratory archives remain, but are endangered. And so with our eyes open to this approach to laboratory practice, um, as a, as a production of an image archive, we can start to look at all these other kinds of scientific sites that hold massive photo archives and begin to take the presence and meaning of those collections of photographs into account in our understanding of the knowledge produced by these places. And so I just have a couple of examples I won't, I won't go into into depth, but um, these are some images of the Astronomical Plate Archive at, at Yale, my home institution. They're not there anymore. Um, the building that they were stored in, the basement of, um, is currently being demolished as we speak. Um, and the astronomers who work with these plates tried to get, um, tried to mobilize institutional support at Yale to keep them there, both so that the scientific program of doing work on these plates um, could continue and because of their importance as part of the cultural history of science at Yale. Um, that project failed and so now they're at a centralized plate archive. But they remind us, oops, um, they remind me, anyway, of the fact that astronomy was a glass plate-based science for over a century. Up until the 1990s, these, the, the glass plates in this collection were being made. So from the 1880s to the 1990s, that's what this collection of 100,000 glass plates represents. Um, you've got the, um, the detailed records of each plate, then the notebooks, the logbooks are in milk cartons here. Um, so that's one example. Of, and, and so, you know, astronomy now has this massive preservation problem around the astronomical plates. So astronomy is an archival, it has to be an archival science too. So now they have photo conservators who work with astronomers to come and preserve these collections. We weren't able to make it happen at Yale, um, but it is happening elsewhere, Harvard especially, but also at other um, archives around the world. 
Another example of this um, is the massive archive of um, hundreds of thousands of photographs of nuclear test explosions at Los Alamos um, in the New Mexico desert. So the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos had a high-speed photo uh, photographic laboratory that was established at the inception of the project. And its purpose was to ensure that the first nuclear test, the Trinity test, um, in July 1945 would be the most photographed event in history. So 100,000 photographs just of that, of this Trinity test were produced. And a small number of them were sent to DC to become publicity photos, but the vast majority of them were kept to be used as a data set regarding the fireball size, the, um, the yield, the blast yield of these things. So these could only be measured off of photographs. Yeah, well done, thanks. Um, so yeah, so I just want to urge us to think about scientific photographs not just as visual records, but as material records of how knowledge of different kinds is made, um, how it's maintained and circulated in particular periods in particular places, um, and to try and recover the museological archival dimension of laboratory practice through paying attention to them. Thanks.